Time for another episode of the Cultural Hall. It is an Articles of News episode and monumental day as it is not Brother Kyle joining us for Articles of News. It is Lindsay. Throw your hands up in the air. It's great to have you, young lady. Do you post these videos? Because I am literally throwing my hands up in the air uh, right now. I do for our Patreon subscribers. And what a great segue that I swear to you on everything, and Lindsay will attest to this, we did not talk about. That is where I wanted to start here at the beginning of this episode. Now, I don't know how close you have been monitoring the uh, Cultural Hall and our Patreon page, Lindsay, but we have really tried to make a big push. We had a goal set for 2020 that we would have 100 Patreon saints of the Cultural Hall. And when it got to be the 1st of December, I was like, I don't know. I'm not sure that we're going to make it. But by name, this is going to feel a lot like the begat chapters of the Old Testament. I would like to mention a few people. So let me begin, and I'll do this as quick as possible. Kathy Wasuiera, I think I already uh, shouted her out here on the show, but Berlin Yud, Todd Haddon, Kathleen Shumway, Carl Eric Benyon, Melanie Bailey, Andrew Hopkinson, Jamie Deshone, Amy Brierly, Julie Van Benden, uh, nope, I did it wrong, Julie Van Denberg, harder to do than I thought. Uh, Lois Lawrence, John Shaw, say good riddance to John Shaw. He didn't want to be a Patreon subscriber anymore. How about Marcia Stewart, Vicki Jarvis, Teresa Pettit, Carol Paxton, Melody Clegg, Gail Lassen, Corey Ward, Bobby Jones, Deborah Owens, Tyler Lloyd, Leonard Hansen. Oh, I'm still going. Michelle Melville, DK Jones, Rachel Pay Goodman, Gina Vega, Greg Palmer, Paul White, Rhonda Buffington, Anne Holbrook, Mark Mallory, who was our 100th, and uh, Greg Palmer, who is now our 101st. Thank you to everyone who found their way to patreon.com forward slash the cultural hall. Listen, if we didn't just lose all of our listeners right there, then we're doing okay. Listen, it's, like... a, it, it's just, it's, it's, you know, you don't read the Old Testament begat chapters all the time, but you do <laughs> read them once. No, it is a very important thing that you read those names. Uh, as one who works for the Lord's radio station, I have mis mispronounced a name a time or two, so you did very well. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. What is new with you? In addition to working, doing all the political coverage with first the election and then the recount of the election and then the counting of the recounting of the election uh, to finally, just a couple of days ago, the the finality of the Georgia election how is that just exhausting? Grateful to have a job? Where do you stand with all that? Yeah, I'm I'm very grateful to have a job. And, um, you know, KSL had never had an elections reporter before. So I was sort of thrown into this role trial by fire. Hopefully I survived it kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so I'm very grateful for the opportunity. It's been fun. It's been very educational. I have learned a lot. I um, have learned more than I ever wanted to know about politics and Utah politics. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, it's just been a very educational experience. And I am just, I don't, it's just silly season. It was silly season for so long. It was yeah. just insane. Some of the stories that you'd have to cover and you're just like, what, 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 is what are we doing people? Right. What, it seemed like, what? yes. What is happening right now? So that's kind of how I felt with it. But um, I still have a job, even though the election is technically over. Mm -hmm. I um, just still report for the afternoon news and cover whatever stories. Usually I get thrown the political stories um, just because that's kind of what I've covered for a little while mm -hmm. or follow stories uh, to something political that's happening or something on Capitol Hill or something like that. Uh, Utah's Capitol Hill. Um, you have to say uh, Utah's but, Capitol Hill. Right. Well, yeah. the nation's Capitol Hill is a different Capitol Hill. Sure. Than Utah's sure. Capitol. sure. Um, so, yeah, I'll just cover whatever they throw me that day. And it could be anything from the... Utah football team to the legislators on Capitol Hill. So and you, you have a couple of, co of podcasts. I should have asked you this in case they aren't still around. Did, are you still doing the mom show? Still do the mom show. It airs Sundays at 10 a.m. on the Lord's radio station. Sure. Yeah. News radio. I actually think you work for the Lord's radio station. Hey, listen, it... listen, listen. We're, we, all, we all take a little bit of that 10%. It's fine. <laughs> Don't worry about it. 
Uh, Listen. Are are you still finding yourself talking about wrought iron gates? Are you still doing that show yeah, as well? Yes, I still do the home show. So technically, my voice is on the radio station seven days a week, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is kind of crazy when you think about it. I don't work that much, um, but yeah, I take care of my kids in the morning, which is unpaid labor, and mm-hmm. then I uh, work <laughs> for money in the afternoon, and I love what I do. Now, last, last time we <laughs> chatted... You know, we talked a little bit about the anxiety about being around people. Certainly with COVID, there are some different experiences and and feelings that you have had. You have not yet had the virus, I assume. I have not had the virus. I feel very grateful. Yes, we talked a lot about my anxiety last time. Mm -hmm. And since then, I have gotten on the medication. I think I was just starting it Mm -hmm. when we talked, or Mm -hmm. was I going Mm -hmm. to start it? I I don't recall a a medication even being discussed, but that, that has helped you? Oh, tremendously. Yes. I love the medication. And I knew that I, I kind of got to that point where I could not get out of my own head. It was really the crux of it was this health anxiety where every cough, every worry, every, you know, uh, twinge in my body became COVID and mm-hmm. I would get to panic over this is starting, this is happening. And like, I think this has happened to a lot of people. I've heard a few different like podcasts and stuff, people talking about It kind of being a thing like this pandemic has really forced us into contemplating our own mortality in a way. Sure. And I don't know if anyone else has had that experience, but for me, it has been like, um, yeah, you're just kind of contemplating like, what if I get sick? What if this thing catches me? There's no way to know. And you just kind of go into this sort of uh, anxiety ridden state. And mine just really manifests in this health anxiety um, with every twinge in my body worrying me. And so I just got to the point where I wasn't able to cope as well as I wanted to. So I started taking the medication to hopefully just slow it all down. And that's what the medication does for me. It kind of just like, it brings the highs down. Mm -hmm. And when I say highs, I mean the panic, it brings the panic down. And then it brings the lows kind of up. So you kind of just stay at an even keel. And like a lot of people are like, I want to be able to feel and I'm like, No, I don't. I don't want to feel a thing. Like I can't handle emotion. Apparently, this is something I really need to work on. Because I'm just like, anytime I start to feel this worry or this panic, I'm like, get me out of here. I really need to get better at at knowing that emotion's not going to kill me. But I get and I still do it to a degree where I just get really um, like I, I just have a, a sensation in my body and then I add the worry on top of it. Yeah. Right. So not yep. only am I feeling a headache, but now I'm worried about my headache. Mm-hmm. So I'm feeling worry and a headache. Oh, I have a headache. Is it because I live underneath the power line? Maybe that thing I watched on PBS, it means that it's melting me from above. Maybe I am being melted from above. What am I going to do with my children if they find me dead in my bed tomorrow? Yeah, I've been I I have certainly been there and especially in the last few months. I fall asleep with my Bluetooth headphones on every single night. Am I going to get cancer? Because I just, (laughs) yeah. Everything. And, and when I was in that state where I wasn't able to get out of those, those would just spiral and I would ruminate and, and I very much have OCD tendencies. Mm -hmm. Now I, I I think, you know, OCD, the disorder itself can be much more debilitating than my one, mine was, Mm -hmm. but it very much happens on a spectrum. Right. And I certainly was functioning. It wasn't impacting my daily life so much that I couldn't function. Some people have it so severe, you know, that they can't get out of their beds, you Mm -hmm. know, but Mm -hmm. I was certainly functioning, but my quality of life was diminished. I wasn't, I was too worried all the time, too panicked all the time to really like not be annoyed at my children all the time. So I just knew that I was, uh, I needed some help. And so the medication for me is a supplement to all the things I already do with thought work. And it's just helped, um, it's helped me not spiral yeah. anymore. And so I'm able to kind of like slow down the reaction time and really be like, okay, what, what is happening in my body? What, you know, I can just slow it all down, which is really helpful. Let me ask, uh, when, and I, I want to make sure that we get to articles of news, but I am sort of fascinated about this. And certainly within our culture, when you tell people that you're on some sort of medication for anxiety, do you, when you say it, do you feel judged and or have people in fact judged you for, for that? If they're judging me, I have no idea and okay. I don't care. Yeah. I really don't care. I, 
you can think whatever you want about me and my medication. Like I spend the majority of my time just trying to be okay. So I I don't have capacity for what you're thinking about my medication. I mean, don't get me wrong. There are certainly other areas where I'm terrified of people's judgments, but the medication is not one of them. And so um, whatever people think about medication, that is what they think about medication. It's not how I feel about it. So I just... And to that point, I, I feel like we're, you know, we're walking away from that, that shame and stigma of medication or even just of therapy in general. I just wondered if you had ever encountered that and if that was something, uh, you know, you, you talk about, and I'll just share this briefly. So having actually had the virus, I think I've only touched on this. There was a point where I was like, I might need to go to the hospital. And as part of that, I was like, People who go to the hospital, I got it fairly early on, people that go to the hospital go to the hospital to die, you know, and there was certainly that dread of like, oh, I am not faring well like I thought I would. But then this sweet thing of like, if I died and I looked back on my life, is this the life that I would want to lead? And I know this seems like the perfect setup for the 2021 film, you know, uh, not without my COVID or whatever the thing was, you know, the, whatever the movie would be called. But like looking back, I have consciously made different choices since contracting the virus because I don't want some aspects of my life that I was leading uh, before the virus to be what either my legacy, you could call it that way, or, you know, just enjoyment of life. There are things that I'm like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to yeah. persist in those things. And I hope it doesn't take a virus for me to get to that point because I do feel like there's an element of like, I am fearful of this thing and I'm just hiding in my basement. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. I'm trying to stay safe and trying to keep my family safe. I'm not, it doesn't feel good to me to just go out there and live life like normal, which seems like everyone else is doing. Right. But yeah, certainly when we get out of this thing, there will be a new appreciation for the simple things of going to the grocery store and not fearing a deadly virus when you go to Target and having to combine all your trips and mm-hmm. just making sure. I mean, I am still, I mean, you have antibodies. Frankly, I'm kind of at the point where I'm just like, give me some antibodies. Cause whoever, I, I feel like the people that are out there with antibodies, they feel bulletproof right now. And they're like pandemic, what? Like yeah. I'm just walking <laughs> around like protected, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. And the rest of us are having to fear it. Meanwhile, just because you have antibodies doesn't mean you couldn't be contagious so let's make sure we're clear on that and we don't know if the vaccine is going to stop the spread of the virus so let's be clear about that too so we still need to be taking precautions even if you know you have antibodies or have gotten the vaccine but i yeah if i could if i would wear a mask for the rest of my life if i could just be protected from this thing and then i wouldn't have to worry about it well and and a discussion probably for another time where we don't have news that we need to get to and uh coming up in the um third block of the cultural hall i have a very special interview for you i'll tell you what that is coming up in just a minute but um yeah i mean i i i I think that people will, in a longer term, probably wear masks. Think about how just you haven't gotten the flu or, you know, some of those other things. It's been great as far as that goes. Other things, is it worth it, will be the discussion. I'm not going to throw it out there one way or another because I don't want to handle your emails. <laughs> right. Con- contact at theculturalhall.com is the email address if you do want to send us an email. A huge thanks to the folks over at Utah Taste Off. Find them on Instagram. They they are who sponsor our email, and they've got delicious goodies. If you live in the Utah area, you can get in on that Utah Taste Off. It's on Instagram, at Utah Taste Off. Let's take a break and come back and do actual articles of news. Hey, it's me, Richie T. I found myself with a little bit more time on my hands, and maybe you're finding yourself in that same position. Well, allow me to introduce you to Best Podcast Consultant in Utah. I don't have the domain, and and really I can do this wherever because I'm doing most of the classes virtually, but if you would like to reach out to me, uh, probably the simplest way is if you just do contact at theculturalhall.com, or you can find me online, richietstedman.com. You can check that out. I would love to help you if you are already established in a podcast or you're thinking, you know what? I've got this downtime. It's a passion project. I've always wanted to do it. You can reach out to me. You can do contact at theculturalhall.com or find me on any social media at Richie T. Stedman. Here in the second block, let's do some actual articles of news. Hit it, Peter. 
You can't lose articles of news. And away we go. Uh, you know, I'll be completely transparent. At the end of the first block when I said, we've got a really great interview coming up for you in the third part, it's because I didn't remember who it was. But in the third block, we talk with Spencer McBride, who is with the Joseph Smith Papers Project, and he is going to give us a scoop, a literal, no one else is talking about this yet, scoop as part of our interview with him. Uh, the thing that we talk about the majority of the time is a brand new podcast from the Joseph Smith Papers Project. It's called The Priesthood Restored. If you remember the first vision one that they did, uh, we talk a little bit about that, but they have a new one that comes out on Thursday. Uh, we'll tell you all about what it is, how you can subscribe to it, and not miss a single minute of that. That's coming up in the third block. Uh, let's start with news. Uh, this one is sad. A uh, 20-year-old missionary for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints uh, passed away while serving in his home country of Nigeria. His name is Elder Samuel Joseph Isa Jr. He experienced a sudden health episode that was unrelated to COVID-19, was transported to a local hospital where he passed away. He'd been serving since May of 2019. Um, he had uh, been serving out and about, but had been returned to his home country of Nigeria since the pandemic. So... Um, was was close to home, but passed away, and again, not of COVID-19. Um, you remember a couple weeks ago uh, when uh, the BYU, that is the football team, um, they played the Boise, Boise State uh, football team, and uh, they had the big prayer that was, you know, there in the in the middle of the field, and everyone was like, this is so cool, this is so great. The Boise State, they have a chaplain for their team, uh, BYU, obviously, they're, you know, all, everyone who plays for the team is an elder, right? That's a joke, everyone. But, but, so they meet on the, on the center of the field. There's this picture of them kneeling and praying. And, well, uh, they are no longer allowed to have an official chaplain for Boise State's, uh, football team. Uh, it says that uh, they're no longer have that official chaplain pushing Christianity on the players after atheists pointed out that there are legal concerns. And here's the thing. Had that article not been published by the Deseret News bringing the attention to the fact that this took place, it might have been able to continue for a while. But uh, because of that, because they saw that, uh, the the Freedom From Religion Foundation, Freedom From Religion Foundation sent a letter to the school's president ending uh, this chaplain and practice of prayer at the center field. So, and then did I not see an opinion piece from the Deseret News then come out and say, we should be allowed to do this? Well, so BYU will, if you have ever been to a BYU football game, they pray before the game. Not everyone who attends a BYU football game is religious at all, but it is a thing that they can do as a private university. Notre Dame has a chaplain. Uh, that, you know, that meets with them, a father, I guess it would be, a, a priest. Um, different universities like that can do that, but if it's state-funded, receives money from the state, the players can have prayers, but can it be a boik, boik, sponsored event? It can't. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Uh, and then quickly on, on uh, just on BYU before we leave that, and then I want to hear about Utah's big birthday. Lindsay, throw your hands up in the air. Uh, it's interesting. Jason Ayu, who is um, in charge, essentially, of recruiting for BYU's football team, he, uh, when when he was asked if he would, you know, do this for the for the team, he's one of many recruiters, I guess. He said, "Listen, if if you're going to let me do this, I want to do it my way," which seems like the opening scene of every football movie I've ever seen, especially both those by Disney. And um, and they said, "Yeah, of course." And and what he has said. Uh, is that he wants to emphasize that it is uh, a Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints school. He said others in the past have sort of gone away from that. You know, we're cool just like everyone else. And he said, nope, nope. It's felt like BYU has almost shied away from the fact that they're a church school with certain recruits in the past years, perhaps fearing that it could scare people away. But Jason has come into the program and changed that philosophy immediately he says in their mind there is no better place than byu if you're a member of the church so that that's what's going on down at byu now we had a birthday happy birthday to utah, utah. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, Utah turned 125. Happy birthday, Utah. Oh, we became a state on January 4th in 1896. President Grover Cleveland signed an order making Utah the 45th state. But there were some terms. You remember? Uh, well, you won't remember because you weren't. Yeah, alive. I was there. It was it was very right. nice. It was well from your his from your history classes. You will remember that um, Utah had to give up polygamy. The church did. Mm-hmm. That is. Um, I'm getting a call from Los Angeles. I don't know who I'm. Hello, know. Los Angeles. Hello. Yes, it's just my agent. They're yeah. calling. I'm out of this uh, podcast. Whoa, Lindsay, wait, finish this episode. <laughs> Women had the right to vote, which was not as, not the same across the country at the time. Slavery also remained a contentious issue. Congress did not like the name Deseret, which was our original, uh, it came from the Book of Mormon, mm-hmm. means honeybee. Um, and they didn't support the all-Mormon government. So it was renamed Utah after the Ute tribe uh, that was here before Mormon pioneers, obviously. So that is where we are, 125 later. We're still... 125 years later, we're still dealing with some of those same issues, it feels like. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but here we are. Happy birthday, Utah. Did you go watch fireworks? I did not watch fireworks, nor did I watch the inauguration of previous guest of the Cultural Hall, Spencer J. Cox, to be the governor. I know, sort of as a side story, people, uh, I think it was the Desert News, maybe KSL, who said uh, Elder Rasband and another one of the elders, one of the 70s, was at the inauguration. And people are like, this is a complete mixing of church and state. And then it's like, oh, yeah, and Father, this person was here, and Reverend so-and-so was here. It was a showing from the community that everyone is behind the governor, a, a showing of union and uh, and leadership. So calm yep. down, everyone. Yep. Uh, so that was fun. I watched some of the inauguration. I thought it was just a really cool historic day, you know, because yeah. it was it was coincidence and, and maybe it was planned, but it was scheduled on the same day that Cox would be inaugurated and it was Utah's birthday. So yeah. It's uh, maybe they planned that, but it was still two separate events that kind of like tied together. So I just thought the whole day kind of had a spirit about it, uh, you know, with historical significance and then just, you know, getting new leadership and new transition and just kind of like turning this leaf. And I just hope for brighter days ahead. Yeah. And, yeah. And you change. Know, it's interesting, too. I have not yet listened to but have had several people I mean, we know from having Spencer Cox here in the in the cultural hall what a great speaker he is and a, and a genuine, I feel like, uniter. People will hate that I'm going out on this limb, but I don't care. Uh, but I have heard from several people that the lieutenant governor, Deidre Henderson, her speech at the inauguration was particularly profound. I know nothing about her. Um, I am 99% sure that she's a member of the church and maybe a future guest of the cultural hall, he said with a question mark in his voice. I wanted to share these, though, uh, because you don't get Utah without the church and you don't get the church without Utah. These are eight fun facts about the state of Utah. This came, I whittled it down from 25 fun facts because the other 17 sucked. Uh, Salt Lake City has more plastic surgeons per capita than any other city in the United States. Yeah, we do. Go Real Housewives of Salt Lake City. Utah has one of the highest rates of prescription drug abuse in the United States. Over the past decade, it has increased by 800%. Oh, cool. That's a fun fact. Uh, Walt Morrison, the man credited with inventing the Frisbee, was born in Richfield, Utah. He said he got the idea for the originally called Pluto Platter after throwing cake tins on the beach. I met him before he passed. He's a great gentleman. Uh, Salt Lake City, Utah is home to the nation's leading manufacturer of rubber chickens. I had no idea that. I had no idea. We members of the church, we love our uh, we love our rubber chickens. There are two dates that appear on Utah's state seal. 1847, the date that settlers arrived in Utah. And 1896, the year that Utah became the 45th state. Three more. I'll go through them quick. Utah was the site of the nation's first department store. Uh, Brigham Young founded the Zions Cooperative Mercantile Institution, or ZCMI, in 1868. It finally shut down in 1999, but you can see the storefront uh, as it was sold to Macy's, and it's part of City Creek Mall. You can check that out. Uh, Philo T. Farnsworth, best known for inventing a prototype for the first all-electric television, member of the church, and from Beaver, Utah. 
And finally, according to a study conducted by WalletHub, Utah is home to the most charitable people in the country, ranked first in volunteer rates among residents, first in percentage of donated income, and first in median contribution to charity. So go Utahns! And we're very nice, members but of the we like we're very nice, but we like our uh, we like the way we look. <laughs> <laughs> we like our plastic surgeons and the way we feel, apparently. Yes. And yeah. Yes. Uh, there is a new Congress, nine Latter-day Saints. Do you know who they are? Can you name uh, them? Yeah, well, I can't name them off the top of my head, but um, I think I have a list in front of me. I mean, I can, I can name a couple. Well, I can name Mitt Romney, and I can name Mike Lee, and I can name John Curtis. Okay. And, and you know Blake, Blake, you know Blake Moore. Moore from Utah is. Yeah. Burgess so Owens also. He, what, Burgess is LDS? Yep, he is. He's I did not previous guest of the cultural hall. Lindsay, uh, throw your hands up in the air. Yes, Let's see. I, Who, who's the fourth one in Utah? Why can't I remember? Oh, Chris Stewart. Yeah, obviously. Yeah, yeah. So that's six. So all six of our delegation. And then it must be, um, well, Jeff Flake isn't there anymore, right? Nope. Nope. Okay, I don't have the list. Where's the list? Uh, there are nine. They are all Republican. The religious composition, as you find that list, the religious composition of Congress is uh, 88% Christian, and 55% of that 88% is heavily Protestant, according to the Pew Research. Okay. I can't find the list, Richie. Okay, okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. Do you know the other three? You can email us, contact at theculturalhall.com. Interesting fact, uh, Democratic Senator Tom Udall of New Mexico for a long time, or not a long time, I guess, ever since uh, Harry Reid left the Senate, he was the lone Democrat that was a member of the church and served in Congress. So that was interesting. Uh, Very interesting. Yeah, my apologies. I thought I had that list in front of me, but I don't. So yeah, someone will let us know who those other three are. Um, but did you see, speaking of uh, one of our members of Congress mm -hmm. who uh, was accosted at the airport? Oh, yeah. This is ugly and gross. It was really ugly. So um, I saw this on Twitter right when it came out and I shot it over to our newsroom. Um, and then as I sort of researched it a little more, I noticed like the account, this was posted from a Twitter account called QTAW, mm -hmm. which I have no idea whether that has affiliation with a conspiracy group called QAnon. I'm not going to assume that it does, but yep. the Twitter account is called QTAW. So take that for what it's worth. And I posted, I threw this over to our newsroom. I was like, hey, watch this. The first video I saw was the um, chanting traitor, traitor, traitor on the plane. Yeah. And you couldn't really tell if the back of, if that was the back of Mitt Romney's head. So I'm discussing with our newsroom, hey, like, let's see if we can confirm he was on this flight or confirm he was on a flight. Mm -hmm. And and in the meantime, I saw the other video, which is a woman basically walking up to him and um, accosting him, saying he's a, a, tra a traitor and um, openly bashing him for not supporting Donald Trump. And um, yeah. yeah, so, um, you know, Mitt Romney responded the best he could, given, uh, you know, like there was no one else around. He was kind of sitting by himself. He asked the woman to put a mask on. Mm -hmm. Um, couple times she finally agreed, but you can't see her on the video. Yeah. What I just don't appreciate about this video is like, if you disagree with someone, do you walk up and shout it in their face? Like, is this is nope. this really where we are? I'm, like, I mean, it's where some people are, but I mean, you just it's not it's, that's not what you do. You I, don't go to their I private know. residence. You don't any of these things. You just you don't vote for them. You run against them in some cases. And even if you want to walk up and say, sir, can we have a conversation really fast? I, right. I, I want to express my opinion to you. Like it, just approaching it in that tone is going to get your message across so much more effectively than you're a traitor. Like just walking up and, and he probably felt threatened sure. and felt, you know, accosted and felt like he was being attacked. He's not going to hear your argument if you're just attacking him. You may or may not have some valid points in your argument, but you're not going to get your argument heard in that way. And I'm not saying I agree with the points that she was making, sure, but but you just don't do it that way. No, you just don't do it that way. And it's really and I guess this video to me sort of signals this culmination of the what I've been seeing in the greater, larger society. Right. It's just <laughs> we see just people who disagree with other people 
We they don't, whip we out don't their know how to disagree. Phone. No, and we don't just have conversations about it. We just yell at other people and attack them online. And it's very, it's not productive and it doesn't get us anywhere. And, and we're just all fighting now. We're all fighting. And I just hate this, like, I hate this hostile environment we live in right now. If I could, I'd give you a big hug, big COVID <laughs> antibody hug, Lindsay. My uh, my kindergartner does air hugs now. They air me, hug. So me, you hug me. yourself and we pretend that we're hugging. Thanks for joining us for news. Hey, this is Dan, the laptop man from PC Laptops. Friends, I know a lot of you guys and girls are working from home. So here's some tips for making sure your computer's ready for working at home. Because if your computer fails, it's going to be really hard to get it fixed because of dwindling supply and parts. But we have parts right now, and we have a limited supply of new computers available for you. Make sure your computer is healthy and virus and malware free. Hackers are trying to infect people and stealing their information during these challenging times. We'll scan the health of your computer for viruses and malware, plus scan your hard drive, memory, and components to make sure you don't have any failing parts. You want to make sure you have strong antivirus and malware protection software as well. Just get into any PC laptops and we'll check your hardware and your software and scan your computer for viruses for absolutely free. Just go to PCLaptops.com. At PC Laptops, we've been serving you for over 28 years and we've got your back during these times of need. We're all in this together. So just go to PCLaptops.com and we'll get you taken care of. Imagine running a small business today. It's challenging. Imaging and internet presence is an absolute must. Even with that, you're still a small star in a bright cyber universe. Now, imagine you have someone who understands how to get your site designed for your talents and then easily searched by potential clients. Imagine Lennon Design. Whether it's strictly a website or a whole package of logo creation, advertising media, and promotional materials, Lennon Design is your partner in business. They'll test the boundaries of their imagination to create something unique for you. When you need creative, affordable design, let it be Lennon Design. Call 801-699-3022 or visit LennonDesign.com. Here in the third block of the Cultural Hall, visiting with Spencer McBride about a brand new podcast. It's called The Priesthood Restored. It is a Joseph Smith Papers podcast. I am not sure that we here at the Cultural Hall are scooping this podcast, but I haven't seen very much uh, put out uh, about this particular podcast. I sort of read between the lines a couple weeks ago, and I said, Spencer, I, is this what's happening? And you said, don't talk to me. Talk to my handlers. I'm too busy to talk to you. Talk to those who would you know, dictate my time. So I did that, and now you are here, and now we can talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. So, so the Joseph Smith Papers um, project has come out with a new podcast miniseries. So, so some of your listeners might be aware of the first Vision podcast we did last year. Six episodes kind of dove into the world of Joseph Smith in 1820 to better understand the context of the first Vision. And we're doing the same thing with this miniseries. Six episodes, self-contained podcast, focused on the restoration of the priesthood kind of taking a deep dive into understanding that really important event in Joseph Smith's life. Um, what we know about it, how we know what we know, but also, also talking about what we don't know about the restoration of the priesthood and why we don't know what we don't know, if, if that's not a weird way of putting it, but, but also why it's okay if we don't know everything we wish we knew about this event. One of the things that I liked that you guys did with that First Vision podcast that you uh, spoke about. And by the way, all of these things that we're talking about, I'll provide links in the show notes. So stress not, uh, you'll be able to just click through and, and find those things. One of the things I liked about the First Vision podcast mini series that you guys did is that it went into detail, like what the setting would have been like, right? That we often think of, you know, the sacred grove with its glorious trees with all the leaves on it and the the sun broke through, you know, the, those leaves that are on the trees. And when in reality, when it's happening there in what we think would probably be the springtime, right? It's, it is very much not that. And is there similar things, the very physical description of stuff that will take place in this podcast? It, there's some of that. Um, you know, we dedicated a whole episode of the First Vision podcast to that topic. I wasn't sure if that was getting a little too esoteric and a little bit too in the weeds, if you'll pardon the pun. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but it, people have responded really positively to that. So, so we don't dedicate an entire episode to it, but um, Mark Staker, who's a curator with Historic Sites, the same person we talked to about the sensory experience of the Sacred Grove, talks to us about the farm in Harmony, Pennsylvania, where the restoration of the Aaronic Priesthood took place. 
And, and for a long time, I think members have had this notion that it took place right by the river mm-hmm. and that the, that Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery then entered the river immediately after and baptized one another. Right. But, but there's a lot of contextual evidence to suggest that it happened elsewhere on the farm hmm. and that they then went down um, to the river later that day to perform the baptisms. And if I, I'll throw out a teaser, it has something to do with boat traffic hmm. because the river was flooded at this time. There were a lot of boats going up and down the river. The river during the day wasn't the place to be alone. And, and so, yeah, we, we do talk about that, I think, in a really fascinating way that might reshape the visualization that church members have of this event. So so what other things? I mean, six episodes, I would imagine that's probably four, five, six hours worth of content. Yeah, you know, some of the episodes, we aim for about 30 minutes an episode. Um, some are longer, some are shorter. But we're looking at this kind of big picture thing. How does Joseph Smith's understanding of priesthood develop during his life? How does the priesthood organization develop during his life and after? And and I think one of the things that really stuck with me in all these interviews, all this research, is in 1830, when the church is founded and we get what's now Section 20 of the Doctrine and Covenants, Joseph and other church leaders lay out what the priesthood looks like in terms of administering the church. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't look appreciably all that different than, say, the, the priesthood organization of the Baptist or the Methodist and how they administer a church. But very quickly, by 1831 and then into um, the Kirtland Temple in 1836, and and moving on into Nauvoo, Joseph's understanding of what priesthood is uh, expands with time, experience, pondering, and more revelations. So that when we're in Nauvoo, Joseph Smith's talk, the way he's talking about priesthood is so much different than other churches of the time. It's so much bigger than priesthood office and ordination. Uh, We see that priesthood is really to Joseph Smith about bringing the power of godliness into the lives of men and women and and a real focus on the ordinances. In fact, there's this one verse that I've read tons of times, but it stuck with me differently this time. In section 124, God talks about restoring the fullness of the priesthood. And most of us think of the restoration of the priesthood as an 1829 event. And, and then the restoration of Melchizedek priesthood coming shortly thereafter. Mm-hmm. So why in 1840, sorry, excuse me, 1841, do we have a revelation talking about the restoration of the fullness of the priesthood? And, and so the restoration of the priesthood is this really prolonged process. And, and it's really, I think, helpful for us as Latter-day Saints to think of Joseph learning and growing with time rather than Joseph Smith, 1829, knows exactly what the priesthood is and how it works. Well, I mean, it's the very idea of the line upon line, right? When we think of what had been restored in 1830, I mean, the, the capacity and fulfillment of, of you know, the last days and everything like that hadn't even really begun, right? Just starting to roll out. And so being able to not only learn, but also recognize, just like, you're, are you a parent of children? Yes. Yeah, yeah, right. Like when you were like, oh, we're pregnant for the first time, you're like, whoa, mind blown. And you know, what is this and how can I do this? But as you have each kid, you know, the, the, the depth and breadth of your intelligence as far as that goes, I, I think that's exciting. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and I think, you know, we've heard a lot of church leaders in recent years talk about the ongoing restoration. Mm-hmm. And I think we all kind of know what that means, but, but let's think deeply about it. And this is one way of saying, let's look at the restoration in Joseph Smith's life as a process and not as a moment or even just a series of events. And then we begin to see that process continuing since Joseph Smith. Mm-hmm. Um, we look at how the priesthood organization developed, for instance. We've had some big changes relatively recently with how we organize priesthood quorums uh, in the church today. Well, that's a pattern that's come over time. When did youth first, when, when were young men first ordained to the Aaronic priesthood? And why did that change come about? We talk about that. Um, and, and, and we talk about, uh, about how this the priesthood organization develops. The keys were restored through Joseph Smith, but the, the organizations develop and, and, and changes often to meet different needs of a time and place. Um, and, and so I, I hope that Latter-day Saints listening will not only appreciate what this podcast, kind of the light that it sheds on these really important events in church history, but, but I hope that it will also inform the way they think of an ongoing restoration and what that means. What does it mean today to say that the restoration is ongoing? The ongoing restoration I love because, I, I like you say, the moment in time, no. Series of events, eh, not really. 
but President Nelson gets in and is like, hold my Diet Coke, let's do this thing. <laughs> and I, I would assume he probably doesn't drink Diet Coke. I Maybe he does. I don't know. But definitely says, all right, let, let's let's really put into focus this constantly being restored type of thinking, which maybe for a little while we lost sight of or certainly didn't recognize. Now, I want to ask you, because it seems like, especially most recently with the First Vision Project, I know that you're not directly involved, but there would be maybe some correlation with podcasts coming from the church news, certainly other entities, and now this, the Priesthood Restored podcast miniseries that you've been working on. The church has really seemed to put a lot of eggs in these type of baskets, these supplemental things. What can you tell me about that and what we can maybe anticipate moving forward? Yeah, and I'll, I'll just I'll just uh, preface it with speaking from my perspective as a historian on the Joseph Smith Papers, who's mm-hmm. helping create some of this uh, content and not for the church uh, as a whole. I think I think there's a real clear sense that a lot of people, especially in the rising generation, but but even among older generations, they get their information in different ways. Mm-hmm. You know, we're still printing books. We love books. I love the printed word. Um, we have saints. We have the Joseph Smith Papers. And for some people, the Joseph Smith Papers is this exciting project, but it's daunting Mm -hmm. because it's a bunch of research books. And it's not something most people sit and read page by page. Saints has been a very accessible way of sending church history out to a large number of people. It's translated in a lot of different languages. But, But there's other people that I think no matter how well we write a book, there's people that maybe won't connect to the material. And so if we can find a way to create audio content and visual content to go and and to complement these printed products. Mm -hmm. I I, I think it all serves the greater purpose of let's make our history accessible and understandable for every member of the church or as many members as we possibly can. And if we need to be in the places where they're already accessing information, let's be there. Let's be in those places um, to help them access this information. My understanding of what the Joseph Smith Papers project was originally to what it is now, and I'm sure I don't even fully understand it. I kind of thought that it was three guys in a room that were like, you know, and they're, you know, they've got their little eye monocle and they're like, oh, and he says this, and then they, you know, scribble it to the side. But it is a massive machine within the church. And I'm excited with this year's Come Follow Me as people are getting those and and, and wanting to dive deeper and being able to find uh, answers to questions and then finding subsequently more questions and then more answers. I, I think that it's it's just a, a tremendous work that, that you guys are doing, you collectively as the Joseph Smith Papers Project. And I, you know, quite candidly appreciate how much more open it seems that you you and your colleagues are to talking with me, to, to spending a couple minutes and saying, hey, this is a thing we're excited about, and we can talk about it. It seems like in the past, and maybe this is just my perspective, I'm like, cool, can you talk about it? And you're like, nah, we got th- th- five la- layers of bureaucratic things that we got to work through. And, and these are me. this is me saying these things, not you. Don't get Spencer in trouble. I'm saying these things. But you know, the readily uh, availability of you guys to be able to, to talk about what's going on has been really appreciated, not only by myself, but by those who listen to this. Well, thank you. And, and we're happy to do it. I mean, we love the project we're doing, we're working on. We love the Joseph Smith Papers project. We like it's what it does for scholars, but, but we're increasingly looking for ways that we can kind of make it digestible and more accessible for your average member, mm-hmm. that you don't need a PhD or a master's degree in history to really benefit from what the Joseph Smith Papers project is doing. So so coming on podcasts such as yours is, is a great opportunity for us to kind of showcase that and, and, and say to members, there's a lot that you can benefit from this study. Let us give you some some ways of, of doing that. So two questions then that come from this, this discussion, then I'll let you about your day. The first question is, is are there other mini, mini series in the works that we will see in subsequent years? And the answer is yes. In fact, we have already produced and and edited and created a, a third podcast miniseries. And this one's on the Nauvoo Temple. Cool. And, and that is scheduled for release in October of 2021. Awesome. So now you're going to have to commit yourself to coming back or, or getting me in touch with <laughs> he or she who would talk about that project the most. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and this is the same thing. Kind of, and This one's going to be eight episodes, but it's going to look at... The, the construction of the, the Nauvoo Temple, but it's not necessarily like a history of 
the construction. We're not talking about every nail and every board mm -hmm. and every stone, but we're, we're asking the question, what did the Nauvoo temple mean to the Latter-day Saints who built it? Mm -hmm. How did they view its place in their everyday worship and religious devotion? And what does it mean for it to be rebuilt uh, in Nauvoo today? And, and so it's kind of this big picture look at the Nauvoo temple, both as a place of worship, but also as a, a cultural symbol. Is there any thought then to do something like that with the Kirtland temple? Because you skipped a generation of the church. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So uh, I, maybe I should have prefaced that um, these podcasts weren't necessarily going in chronological order yeah. uh, and, and they weren't necessarily comprehensive. I think there's a lot of interest in these things and yeah. we'll just have to see what we have time and resources to make. Uh, to be perfectly candid, the, the First Vision podcast was kind of an experiment. Let's see what happens if we make a narrative style podcast miniseries. And it was we were coming up on 2020. It seemed the perfect time to do the first vision. Mm -hmm. And we had high hopes. And, and honestly, we have been blown away by the response. We've received so many positive messages and, and the listener numbers lead us to believe that this is a way of reaching a lot of people. So we decided to make two more and we'll see how they do. And if the response and the demand is still there, I'm sure there'll be talk of, of others. But uh, we'll, we'll kind of take it one or two at a time. Since I know I have your ear, at least at this moment, I love when people give me suggestions. So I love being able to pitch it forward. I would love, 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 can we say love a couple more times, <laughs> one about the origination of the Relief Society. And I think that that would be unique from where some of these other things are. I think it would highlight a lot of characters from our church's history that we aren't aware of. I know the church makes lots of resources available and is continuing to do so with, I think it's Emmeline B. Wells uh, mm -hmm. diaries or something that's available now online. That's Am I correct. right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, and I'll, so I'll tell you this one. I think that's a great idea. Um, and, and in the meantime, we have some really good resources that are out there, not just the printed work, such as the first 50 years of the Relief Society, the Emmeline B. Wells journals. We're also working on Eliza our snows um, sermons. Mm -hmm. um, but there's another podcast produced by the uh, church history department and the saints channel called the Latter-day Saint women's podcast. And, and the whole first season about that is, is based on a book called at the pulpit, which is a collection of women's discourses, which, it's you, fantastic. Can, which you can get in your gospel library app. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but that podcast has continued on. Hmm. And, and the focus of that podcast is Latter-day Saint women, both in history, but also uh, also in the present. And so, um, so, so and, and I'll also add that the Nauvoo Temple podcast has a big chunk dedicated to the founding of Relief Society, probably not as much as we need. Sure. But, but it's, but I, I agree with you 100%. The founding of that organization is so important and so fascinating that it deserves greater attention by all of us. Now, the last question I have is, it's the priesthood restored. Is it strictly the Aaronic priesthood, or do we venture into the Melchizedek priesthood restored as well? Uh, it's both. Okay. And, and so the Aaronic priesthood, we talk about, you know, we have more um, recorded history related to the Aaronic priesthood than the Melchizedek priesthood. And, and this is where kind of what we know and what we don't know comes into play. We don't know the date on which the Melchizedek priesthood was restored the records just don't survive. And so we talk about record keeping. We talk about why we don't know. But then we also talk about what we do know, what clues we have. But, but less someone's going to listen thinking, oh, the Joseph Smith Papers has cracked the case and they've figured it out. We haven't. Hmm. But, but we do spend considerable time talking about why it's okay that we don't know every detail um, about that event, uh, how, how we can wish that we knew more. But ultimately, it's okay that we don't. And then uh, finally, along with that, do you broach the topic of uh, Peter, James, and John being there for the Melchizedek priesthood restoration and the different characteristics of those individuals? You know, you we know what I'm alluding to. About yeah, because some maybe didn't taste of death. So how did that? You know, how do, how does that work? Do we get into any of that stuff? Yeah. So we're focused more on what we can document. And, and, and what's what's documentable. And, and so we, we talk about John the Baptist. We talk about when they first identify him in the records as John the Baptist. Mm -hmm. And with the coming with the restoration of the Melchizedek priesthood, we talk about references in Joseph's revelations and letters uh, to Peter, James and John to reminiscent accounts, mm -hmm. but also about this incident in 
this recording Joseph Smith's history that they say happens in the chamber of Father Whitmer, where they hear the voice of Christ with instructions about the restoration of the Melchizedek priesthood. Now there's ambiguity surrounding all these different events. Mm-hmm. And we're very upfront about what we know and what we don't know. But, but yeah, when it comes to the speculation, we're really careful either not to speculate or when we do speculate, we're really clear yep. that we are speculating. Yeah. This, this is in fact speculation. It is something that I have spent countless hours where I'm like, I wonder what that was like, you know? Yeah. You know, we get some from heaven. We get some from walking, you know, across the, I don't know. Anyway. People- oh, and, and Oliver Cowdery wrote down his experience with the Aaronic priesthood and, and said that he would later write about the restoration of the Melchizedek priesthood. And we never get that. You know, events happen in Cowdery's life and in the life of the church that prevent him from ever writing that history. Um, but then when Oliver Cowdery comes back in 1846, uh, he writes a letter where he reflects on the grandeur of Peter when he restored the high priesthood. Hmm. He doesn't go into a lot of detail, but there's this very clear reference to this awe in which Oliver Cowdery looked at an angelic Peter mm-hmm. and in this moment where the priesthood was restored. And so what do we make of all that? Well, you know, we could speculate, but, but you know, mostly we just focus on what's documented. We are two nerdy guys talking about nerdy church history now. We have gone off in the weeds. Spencer, we ask everyone who steps into the cultural hall three questions. I'm going to ask those of you now. The first question is, is do you have a calling? And if so, what is it? Yes, I, I have a calling in, in my stake. I serve on the, the stake high council. If you could pick a calling for yourself, either one that exists or make one up, what would you pick? So, so this is really, okay, if you didn't think I was a nerd before, I would love to be like the ward or stake historian. And, and I know that's different than my work as a professional historian. But, oh, I appreciate good records kept by local units. Mm-hmm. And so there's this kind of drive in me to keep those good records for my home units. Yeah. I was that for a short time. It was laborious and I was not good at it. And they quickly said, yeah, we, we, need, someone, <laughs> we need someone a little bit more like Spencer. They didn't say that directly, but that's, that, that's what they said sort of as they went what about a, a great calling with people? Would you like to work with people? And I went, yeah, I could probably do that better. The last question we ask everyone is, and we ask you to interpret this however you would like, but the question remains, what is your favorite part of your faith? Yeah. So for me, it's, it's this, this idea of, of Christ overcoming, you know, not just our sins, but, but all the unfairness of life. I, I think this is a big question that's not just in Christianity, but a lot of religions is why some people seem to be born into better situations than others, hmm. why some people's lives are harder than others. And, and to me personally, part of my discipleship is, is this comfort that comes that even though some life's is so often unfair, the idea that in the grand scheme of things, Christ is going to make it fair for everyone, that, that it, everyone will be judged fairly. Everyone will be treated fairly. Uh, in the grand scheme of things, that gives me comfort, but it also gives me it also gives me motivation that if part of my faith in Christ is this overcoming of inequality and unfairness, that when I serve others, when I seek out the marginalized, when I seek out those who are overlooked and need more help than others, that that is as much my responsibility as it is Christ's responsibility. Jesus will do it perfectly. Mm-hmm. But in the meantime, if I'm going to call myself one of his disciples, it's up to me to help ease the burden of, of those on the margins of society. And, and to me, that's a really powerful element of, of my testimony and of my faith is, is this need to look out for those who need extra help. Beautifully said. Spencer McBride, the podcast is called The Priesthood Restored. It's with the Joseph Smith Papers Project, and you can find links to everything which we discussed in the show notes for this episode. We hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body, that Spencer, if you're not healthy enough to listen this week, that you'll be healthy enough to listen next week, and that when the time comes, you will be able to travel home in safety. In the meantime, we'll be saving a seat for you on the back row of the Cultural Hall. Save me a seat, it's sure to be neat. 